Jesus is first over creation and over the church. And if you are in Christ, Jesus has reconciled you to be holy. Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. So, if you're walking along Laoidia, not too far from here, and you asked 10 strangers this question, who is Jesus? What answers do you think you would get? Well, you might get 10 different answers. Some might say that Jesus was a great teacher. Some might say that Jesus was a healer. Some might say that Jesus cared about the poor and the oppressed, and we should too. Some might say that Jesus was, well, he was kind of like the Middle Eastern version of Confucius. And each of these people might think they have a favorable view of Jesus. They might think they're being respectful of Jesus in what they say. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, all might have nice things to say about Jesus. But are these really nice things to say about Jesus if they do not get to the heart of Jesus' identity? Yes, there may be a dash of truth in something they said. But what is missing is of more importance. Yes, Jesus' good reputation may give you the opportunity to speak more of Jesus, but there is much that still needs to be said and ideas that would need to be corrected in love. I was thinking of an example if I... Um, maybe one of you who have graduated from college and who are working, and I introduced you to a friend, and I said, well, this is so-and-so, and, -so, and he, he graduated from kindergarten. And you would look at me kind of funny and like, well, that, didn't, that was just like a bad joke or not polite or something. And, but, but I think that's a little bit like what, we're, what people often do when they talk about Jesus. They think they're being respectful, but they only have a tiny sliver of who he really is. So how would you answer the question, who is Jesus? Where would you begin? If you wanted a, a longer answer in the form of a, bio, of a biography, one place you could go would be in one of the Gospels. Recently, a few of the brothers here in our church have been continuing preaching through the Gospel of Luke. The Gospels introduce the person of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, there are also rich and deep summaries stating who Jesus is. You see this in some of the epistles in the New Testament. And if you wanted one succinct paragraph to think hard over, to read over and over, perhaps to memorize. One 
beautiful place we could look is the first section of our scripture passage this morning in the book of Colossians. This is our third sermon in the book of Colossians together, and this morning we'll be looking at Colossians 1, 15 to 23. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. Please turn in your Bibles there. It's also printed in your bulletins. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. The book of Colossians was written by Paul and Timothy to the church in Colossae. So far in the book, we have heard of the faith, hope, and love of the Colossian church as those who have received the gospel and are continuing to be transformed by the gospel. We've considered how Paul thanks God for his good work in the Colossian church and how Paul continued to pray for them that they would grow in obedience to God. In Colossians 1, 3 to 13 to 14, we continue to see the core of the reason that Christians should give thanks to the Father. And that is because of what Jesus did. We read in verses 13 to 14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that brings us to our passage for this morning. Paul has more to say about Jesus, the beloved Son of God who redeemed a people for himself. And so let's pick up in Colossians 1, verse 15, and read until verse 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In some ways, this is a difficult section to sum up because there's, there's so much here. It's such a rich passage, and I, I don't want to overlook anything. But I do think that having a, a one-sentence main idea is helpful for us. Uh, so we're still going to have that main idea, and this morning's main idea is this. Jesus is first over creation and over the church. And if you are in Christ, Jesus has reconciled you to be holy. Jesus is first 
over creation and over the church. And if you are in Christ, Jesus has reconciled you to be holy. Say that one more time. Jesus is first over creation and over the church. And if you are in Christ, Jesus has reconciled you to be holy. In unpacking this main point, we'll answer two questions. The first question is, who is Jesus? The second question is, who are you? The answers to these two important questions are how we ended up with our main point. So let's begin with our first question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? There are two main answers to this question of Jesus' identity here. We'll look at the, the first one first. So look with me again at verses 15 to 17. Who is Jesus? Here Paul shows that Jesus is first over creation. Jesus is first over creation. Looking again at verse 15, we, we read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. When we think of the image of God, it would be right for us to think back to Adam being created in the image of God. Adam was meant to be an image of God, and all of humanity are meant to reflect God in certain ways. It's a privilege for us as humans to be created in God's image. But we know we do not image God as we should. But Jesus is the image of God. Jesus images God as Adam was meant to image God. Jesus existed before Adam, and so really it was Adam who was meant to reflect something of Jesus. One of the hymns we sang earlier this morning phrases it, well, Jesus, the perfect picture of the unseen God. And so in the book of John, when one of his disciples asked Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus replied by saying, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus represents and pictures God perfectly because he is God. The next half of verse 15 speaks of Jesus being the, the firstborn of all creation. Some cults from the heresy of Arianism just a few centuries after Jesus to the Jehovah's Witnesses today misread this and other passages in the Bible to speak of Jesus as being created. But the end of verse 16 says that all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. So, and all means all, whatever language we're talking in. Every single being created was created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus was not a created being. The Nicene Creed, an early Christian creed from 325 A.D., speaks of Jesus being eternally begotten, not made. This is in part to address the false teaching that Arius was propagating at that time. Jesus is from eternity past. He did not have a beginning. This is what Christians of all denominations have historically agreed upon. 
The word firstborn here has to do with Jesus' rank. Not so much Jesus' birth. At different times in the scriptures, Israel and David have been referred to as God's firstborn. This has to do with the inheritance that God gave to them. David was not literally the firstborn. He was the youngest child. But God gave him the birthright of the firstborn. The word firstborn will be used again in this same sense in verse 18, having to do with position. Verse 16 shows why Jesus should be called the firstborn of all creation. We read in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. In regards to Jesus being first over all created things, we also read verse 17, which says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In reading this, we're reminded more than once that Jesus created everything, whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible. There's this language here of thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. This could refer to earthly thrones or dominions, but it would seem that this language of rulers and authorities is is more being used in regard to, to spiritual forces, even spiritual forces of evil. That is how the language of rulers and authorities is used in Ephesians 6. And Paul often is using similar ideas and language in the books of Ephesians and Colossians. And so we realize that Jesus is Lord. And while he did not create evil, all things were created through him and for his honor and glory. Jesus is before all things in time and in position, and he holds all things together. Doug Moo in his commentary on Colossians sums up this idea by saying, what holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person the resurrected Christ. The universe is not held together by an impersonal force or by random chance. The universe is held together by Jesus. So who is Jesus? He's the first over creation, over all created things. And we have to get this right. We have to understand who Jesus is. We'll see later in the book of Colossians that a false teaching is creeping into the church that makes less of Jesus than he truly is. And when we're talking about cults, whether it's the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or others, we're not talking about disagreeing about some minor doctrine. Oftentimes, if you get into a conversation with them, they, they almost try to make themselves sound like Christians. But we're talking about people who have been deceived into thinking they're a lot like Christians, or basically the same as Christians, but who actually don't believe in the triune God of the Bible. Both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons believe that there was a time in eternity past when Jesus did not exist. We do not worship the same Jesus 
as they do. In being ready to discern truth from error, Paul wants the Colossians to be grounded in who Jesus Christ truly is. The same is true for us today. It's not enough to nod your head in agreement that Jesus was a good teacher or a God with a lowercase g. Many believers of other religions would be happy to nod their heads to these kinds of claims. We're in great danger if we begin speaking of Jesus as if he were less than he truly is. Jesus is the perfect image of God because he is God. He rules supreme over all creation because he created all creation. All creation is meant to bring glory to his name. Jesus' supremacy over all creation is reason enough to bow and worship him. It's reason enough to stand in awe of Jesus. But there's more that Paul wants us to meditate on in regards to the identity of Jesus. And that brings us to our second answer in regards to the question, this first question, who is Jesus? Here Paul shows that Jesus is first over the church. Jesus is first over the church. Please look with me again at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In verse 18, the focus shifts a bit. The spotlight is still on Jesus, but the focus shifts to Jesus' relationship with his people. Jesus is described as the head of the body, the church. Jesus has authority over the church. This is talking about the universal church of which local churches are meant to be visible manifestations of. At first, we might not catch the connection between Jesus being head of the church and Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. But we should ask ourselves what it means that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Since Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, this also gives us hope that we also can rise from the dead. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, Christians should be the most pitied people on earth. Because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, our faith does not rest in truth and in true hope. But Jesus did rise from the dead. So we also share in the hope of the resurrection from the grave. In using this language of being the firstborn from the dead, Paul continues to be speaking of believers. The church is made up of people who have been given new life by Jesus. The church is made up of people who have the sure hope of being raised from the dead like Jesus was. It is because Jesus rose from the dead first that we can have a church in the first place. And this hope is shared by all members of God's church, universal. In being the head of the body, the church, in being the beginning, in being the firstborn from the dead, Jesus again shows himself to be preeminent. Going back 
to the Christian belief that Jesus is God, we read in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then we continue to read in verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The work of Jesus on the cross was a, a reconciling work, a peacemaking work. But what does it mean that Jesus would reconcile to himself all things? I think we can understand this to mean that all of the new creation will be fully reconciled to Jesus. We know from the book of Revelation and from other places in the Bible that evil cosmic powers and rulers and authorities will be judged and will be punished eternally. God will not reconcile with Satan and his followers. But there is a sense in which Jesus is reconciling himself, all things in the new creation. There's a sense in which the whole creation, this creation, is groaning, waiting for that final day, when Jesus returns and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so two applications here for Christians in considering who Jesus is. First application, in, in thinking again on Jesus being the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the universal church and, and every local church. So this local church, so our church, WSBC, Jesus is the head of our church. So what should that mean for us? probably many things that, that could come to mind. But one thing this should mean for us is that we always want to guard that Jesus is truly proclaimed reverently in our church and accurately. We're to honor our head, and our head is Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, check what is preached against the Word of God. Check that those who are up here preaching and teaching are accurately honoring Jesus in what we preach and teach. What is an antichrist? An antichrist is simply a false Jesus. So we need to be ever growing in our relationship with the true Jesus, studying Jesus, learning from his example, thanking Jesus, in awe of Jesus. And whenever a false Jesus comes, will be ready to discern truth from error. Brothers and sisters, as a church, let's be pointing one another to our head, to Christ. Second application, in thinking on Jesus being the firstborn from the dead, looking back on what Jesus has done in rising from the dead, gives us hope for the future for our own resurrection. When we're discouraged, let us look back to what Jesus did at the cross and how Jesus conquered death and rose again from the grave in order to remind us that there is hope for our own resurrection. There is this hope held out for us as Christians that just as Jesus rose from the dead, God also will raise us from the dead to be with Jesus. Let this truth comfort our souls. So brothers and sisters and friends, how will we answer the question, who is Jesus. Because how we answer the question, who is Jesus, has a lot to do with our own identities as well. Is, is he your God? 
Do we treat him as our head? Do we look to him for resurrection hope? That brings us to the end of our answer to our first question. In Colossians 1, 15 to 20, we see that Jesus is first over creation and over the church. That brings us to verses 21 to 23. Here we'll answer the second question for this morning. Who are you? Who are you? Please look with me again, starting in verse 21, which reads, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Here Paul switches the tone from the glorious theology of verses 15 to 20 to again addressing the receivers of this letter. He reminds the Colossians of their former identity. They had been people who had been alienated from God, who had hostile attitudes to Jesus and who did evil deeds. That is who they once were. And who they once were is important in considering who they are now. In verse 21 and until the first half of verse 22, we're answering the question, who have you become because of Jesus? Because of what Jesus has done, who have you become? And we see the link between Jesus' work of reconciliation by the blood of the cross in verse 20 with the first half of verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The Colossians had been hostile to Jesus. They had been enemies of Jesus. They had been evil deeds befitting of enemies of Jesus. But Jesus, by his death on the cross, reconciled them to himself. Jesus made peace with his enemies by paying the penalty they deserved for their sin. I'd like to stop for a second now and say if you're here and you're not a Christian today, we welcome you to, to continue coming and, and learning about who Jesus is. But notice here, sadly, you're still, if you're not a Christian, you're in this category of, of those who are enemies of Jesus. You might not think of yourself as an enemy of Jesus. You might think you have some respect for Jesus. But Jesus did not simply claim to be a good teacher or a miracle worker. Jesus deserves the respect of God himself because he is God. He deserves your worship. So if you do not worship him, you're still opposing him. You're still acting as his enemy by not giving him the honor that he deserves. But Jesus gives you this opportunity to be reconciled to him. Jesus gives you this opportunity to have peace with God. If you turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, Jesus will change your heart from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. Your sins, the wrongs that you have done, have made you an enemy of God, and by yourself you would not seek God. But Jesus came to this earth, he lived the perfect life, and he died the death that you and I deserved in order to reconcile you to God. 
Jesus did something that, that I don't know if any of us would consider doing. He died for his enemies. He died for you and me so that we could have peace with him. If you want to think more about this idea of being reconciled to God, please talk to me more about this after the service. Talk to one of the other Christians here about what it means that Jesus would reconcile us to himself. And Christians, remember that verses 21 through the first half of 22 is is written to believers in Colossae. It's always good for us to remember who we once were and to remember what Jesus has done in reconciling us to God. So brothers and sisters, remember your own testimonies. Remember the testimonies of your fellow brothers and sisters here. Jesus continues to reconcile his former enemies to himself. And it's a wonderful supernatural miracle of his grace to do so. That miracle is a miracle of God's grace. Whether it happens at age five or age 50. Let's continue thinking on this question of who are you as a Christian? As a Christian, who are you meant to be for Jesus? That is what we'll consider as we continue to look starting in the second half of verse 22. Here we read that Jesus has done this work of reconciliation in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Jesus is not done with us as Christians once we're saved. There's this future goal of presenting us before him as blameless and above reproach. This language of holy and blameless above reproach echoes the language of the Old Testament used of the clean animals that were to be sacrificed to God. These animals were were to be spotless and pure. And that is how Christians are to be. We're to be distinct. We're to be holy. We're to be above reproach. Paul uses this above-reproach language elsewhere to refer to qualifications for elders. But here we see that this is what all Christians are meant to be like. Elders should be an example in being above-reproach, but all Christians are to be living in this way before that final day. We're not meant to be Christians who do not mature, who continue to struggle in the same way with the same sins as we did before. We're not meant to be Christians that continue to be trapped in particular ongoing sins. Jesus purposes us. Jesus purposes to present us above reproach. So others will have nothing substantive, bad to say about us because we live in a way that honors Jesus. This is the end goal. We're to be as much like we'll be in heaven as possible before we die and rise again. But it is interesting how Paul adds the word if at the beginning of verse 23. This isn't 
an automatic, no effort Christian life. There are things that need to happen in our lives. We read in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. One can ask the question, how is Paul using the word if? Elsewhere in Scripture we can consider the doctrine of of perseverance of the saints, which I believe is what the Bible teaches. I'll be happy to talk more about this with people later if you'd like to. But at the same time here, we have a real warning, don't we? All of Scripture is God's Word, so, so let's not let our theology from one part of Scripture take the bite out of a warning that is clear here. Let us hold truth in tension. And truth intention is not a contradiction. I do believe God uses warnings for his ultimate sovereign purposes. The question can be asked, is Paul confident the Colossians will continue in the faith? Or does it seem like a, a very iffy thing? Well, a little later in the book of Colossians, in Colossians 2 verse 5, we read Paul writing, For though I am absent in body, Yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so while Paul warns the Colossians that they must live a certain way in order for this to happen, he also encourages them that he does see this evidence of faith in them. Faith is active. Faith is an active continuing trust in God. Paul spoke already of hearing of the faith of the Colossians in Christ Jesus in in verse 4. This faith is meant to be stable and steadfast and not shifting. The language uses adjectives that are often described of buildings. Our faith is to stand strong. Recently, our family was traveling in Thailand. We were exploring an Ikea. And while sitting in the Ikea model kids bedroom. I read a few books to Ezra that they had in that room. And one of those books was the story of the three little pigs. It's a very simple story, the story of the three little pigs. The first little pig builds a house of straw. The second little pig builds a house of sticks. The third little pig builds a house of bricks. And which house will stand when the hungry wolf comes to blow the houses down and eat the piggies. The wolf blows the house of straw down. The wolf blows the house of sticks down. But the wolf cannot blow the house of bricks down. And our faith is to be stable and steadfast like a solid building, like a a brick house. Or to quote the hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock, we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We as Christians are to continue in the faith. We're also warned not to shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If we do shift from the hope of the gospel, there will be disastrous consequences. 
So this involves not falling prey to a false gospel. This involves continuing to remember the true gospel and holding out the true gospel to ourselves and to one another. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is not just what non-Christians need to hear. The gospel is also what we as Christians need to always have held out in front of us. So when I, when I do address non-Christians in the room, that's not the time for Christians to tune out. That's the time for us again to, to consider the truth of the gospel and remember. So what is the hope of the gospel for us? It's the resurrection hope that Jesus Christ secured for us by being the firstborn from the dead. It's the resurrection hope that's laid up for us in heaven that we heard of in the word of the truth, the gospel. It's the hope that we're meant to focus on and continue to focus on all throughout our Christian lives. So Christian, where do you look for hope? Where do you look to as you seek to continue on in the faith? Brothers and sisters, look again and again to the hope that we have in the good news of the gospel. Paul concludes by speaking of how this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and how he is a minister. You also could use the word servant. He's a servant of this gospel. Paul is constrained by the gospel to speak the gospel. We come again and again to the themes of Christ and the gospel in the book of Colossians, and we as Christians need to come again and again to these themes. So brothers and sisters, who are you? Remember who you once were, enemies of God. Remember who you have become, reconciled to Jesus. And remember who you are meant to be, holy and blameless and above reproach before Jesus on that final day. And remember that in thinking on that final day, we must continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, some final application in considering the hope of the gospel. Are we clear on the gospel? Are, are we clear not only on the content of the gospel, but are we also thinking of how to apply it? To all of our life. The warning and encouragement for all of us as Christians here in verses 22 to 23 is that we continue on in the faith. We not shift from the hope of the gospel. So when you're tempted yet again by the same sin, remember that that sin is part of your old self, your enemy of Jesus' self. But now you've been reconciled to Jesus. When you feel yourself drifting away from gospel hope, when you feel it hard to hope, when your life begins to be consumed with the things of this world, whether it's the media or a demanding job or an all-consuming hobby, shift your eyes back to Jesus. When your faith feels shaky, like it's on quicksand, pray for the faith to stand. Ask other brothers and sisters in this room to, to pray that you would stand. Invite others into your life to speak to you about gospel truth and gospel hope. When you have a hard time looking past 
how overwhelmed you feel with today and tomorrow's responsibilities. When it's hard to think on the future and hope for the future, look again to what Jesus did in the past first. Let that remind you again of the, the truth of the hope you have for the future. Look back and then look forward again. Remember again the glorious truths that you are enemies of God, but God has reconciled himself to you by the blood. God has reconciled himself with you by the blood of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, look again and again to Christ. Marvel at who Jesus Christ is. Be amazed at what Jesus was willing to do to save you when you were his enemy. And this is something that we do together. Jesus is our head. We're to point one another to Jesus. We're to help one another look to Jesus. One practical way to do this is by meeting with one another during the week, opening up God's Word together, looking at how God's Word points us to Jesus and help, helps us understand who Jesus is better. Jesus reigns. He reigned before he created this world. He reigns today over a creation that is groaning. And he'll reign forever over the new heavens and the new earth. And in his future reign, his desire for us is that we be forever holy and blameless and above reproach in his presence. And so we wait in hope, the hope that the gospel holds out for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus. Jesus, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for, for being the very image of God. We praise you for being the head of the body, the church. We praise you for being the firstborn from the dead. Father, we pray that, that we would continue to look to Jesus, that we would continue to have faith, that we would continue to spur one another on to faith and in hope as we consider the future resurrection as we consider the future of being with Christ forever. Lord, would you help us to, to think on these truths well and, and see how they change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.